You're listening to audio from Century Baptist Church. To connect with us, visit centurybaptist.org or download the Century Baptist Church app. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. That is good. Those themes and those songs will carry with us. We're going to sing a little bit more at the end of the service. We're going to just mix things up a little bit now, so save your singing voice. We're going to uh, spend some more time singing around the table. We're going to celebrate communion together, the Lord's table, at the end of the service. Uh, there was a man at the doors who were handing out the elements. If you did not receive one and you would like to participate in communion, please let them know. Uh, just, as a reminder, too, you don't have to be a member of Century Baptist Church in order to participate with communion with us. Uh, you just have to be a believer in Jesus Christ, have received his salvation uh, as a free gift, and you can join us for, cel- for uh, communion. So just kind of put your hand up and they'll come find you if you didn't get an element on the way in. There's a, a cup with a little wafer and some juice in the bottom, and that's for the end of the service. So we'll be moving in that direction. That's where this whole service is pointing toward and moving toward now is uh, toward the, uh, communion time. I'm hoping that something will poke you, will stir up in you as we move there, so that as we take of that meal together, that there is something fresh there, something new, something that's awakened uh, for you that you can celebrate what God has done. That is the goal. It's providential. This passage lines up on a communion Sunday. Sometimes Paul, Nathan, and I will just marvel at how God arranges, as we just, we're just going through the book of Matthew, and he arranges certain things to come up on certain days. And today, it was a focus on Christ's life and his death and his resurrection, which will carry over to that communion time. Uh, so we're going to be in Matthew 20, if you want to turn there, Matthew chapter 20, verse 17, starting there. As, we're, as you're turning there, the context is, in the scope of this book and in the scope of Jesus' ministry, he's kind of begun the final climactic push toward the cross. So there's an increased sense of urgency, there's an incre- increased sense of specificity. His mission is really taking form and he's zeroing in on Jerusalem. This is actually the third time, and in your Bible, my Bible says Jesus foretells his death a third time. Meaning there's two other times in Matthew. We've talked about those as we've gotten there. But each time, it increases in intensity and in detail. And we'll talk about that today, about the details that he includes today that he uh, did not include previously when he did this. But the fact that he does it three times explicitly and other times in general shows us that this is the heart of the plan. This is... Uh, this is the point of what he's getting at. And so he's emphasizing it. So we're going to walk through what he says here in this short passage, these three verses. We're going to talk about what he means by that. And then we're going to dig deeper into the, the re- reality behind what he said and understand what's at the heart of his mission. I hope that is uh, evident and effective for us today. So I'm going to read this. Would you please stand as I read Matthew 20, these three verses in chapter starting in verse 17. And then we'll dig in to the passage today. Matthew writes, And as Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve disciples aside, and on the way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Lord, we are grateful that you've given us your word to guide us. Please show us from your holy word today how we can better understand and engage with you, understanding your great sacrifice for us and the life that you promise us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So, walking through this passage, 
What is he saying here? Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. He took the 12 disciples aside. Now, this is not just a throwaway verse. This is how Jesus operated. When he was teaching, sometimes he'd be teaching to hundreds or thousands of people, and then he would take his disciples aside and explain to them something. He was training them because he wanted them to be able to preach the same thing to people when he was gone and for them to understand what they were doing. And so he taught them. He trained them all as they were going along. So this is another time. They're walking to Jerusalem, and he just brings them aside because there's probably many other people around them following him. And he just said, okay, guys, listen, this is important. I know I've said this before, but... Uh, we're, we're getting toward the end game. We're moving toward the, the, the culmination of my ministry here. So this was his discipleship. And I think it's interesting that uh, he took the 12 disciples. All 12 were there, even Judas. Judas was part of this the whole time. As God's providence unfolded, Judas was hearing all of this. And spoiler alert, he's the one who actually is going to bring some of this about in the end. Well, I think it's interesting that he is part of these times when Jesus talks specifically about what's going to happen. So it says, verse 18, we're going up to Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? Jerusalem was the center of life and culture in the Jewish nation. Uh, It was uh, significant, not only at the time, but throughout the entire Old Testament. Jerusalem was the center. Uh, If something big was going to happen, it was going to happen in Jerusalem. And so he made a point to do all of that he was going to do in Jerusalem. He wanted it to be public. He wanted it to be obvious. There was going to be no mistaking what was going down. It was happening in the center of their culture. He says, in Jerusalem, the Son of Man will be delivered. So he talks to himself. uh, He refers to himself as the Son of Man. This is actually the most common way Jesus talks about himself is he says the Son of Man. And this has a variety of symbolic meanings in the whole Bible. In the Old Testament, the Son of Man was talked about as far as apocalyptic literature, looking ahead to the end times when the Son of Man would come and make things right, set things straight. Uh, There's also the Son of Man imagery bound with the suffering servant, meaning the Messiah would come and would suffer for the people. So it's built into that, but also just the fact that when he emphasizes that he is the Son of Man, it emphasizes his humanity. We believe Jesus is fully God and fully man in one being. And so he's emphasizing that he is, he's going through this in a full human expression of his life. So he's em- em- emphasizing that humanity. So he calls himself the Son of Man, and he says the Son of Man will be delivered, which is a new twist. He didn't say this before. This means betrayed. Someone from the inside will turn on him and deliver him over. And that's a new detail. And these guys are probably thinking, you know, at the time, like, well, that's weird. I don't know how that's going to go down. And again, Judas is standing right there. We don't know where he was in the process of his turning away from Jesus. But he's hearing all of it. He will be delivered. He'll be betrayed. He says, delivered over to the chief priests and scribes. This is the highest Jewish authority at the time like the Supreme Court. So when he's talking about the chief priests and scribes, the symbol of this, the representation of this is Jesus' official rejection by the Jewish people. Now, individuals obviously received him and believed in him, but as a culture, as a nation, as a people, they rejected him. And this had to happen according to Scripture. And so going to the highest authority in the Jews was symbolic of him being rejected by the Jews. It says they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Because the Romans were ruling at this time, the Jewish people had certain authority, but limited. And the, the lim- one limitation was they could 
they could say someone deserved to die, but they couldn't actually execute them. They had to turn them over to the Roman government so they could execute someone for crimes. So that was a limitation placed upon the Jewish people. So the, the, the Jewish leaders could go through their own trials and they could have their own uh, proceedings, but they couldn't execute the judgment. And that's why he was turned over to the Gentiles, or Romans, to be mocked and flogged. Now this is also new. He's including very specific details. I think, mercifully, he's trying to prepare his disciples for what's going to happen. Because before he's spoken generally about dying and rising again. Now it's, there's going to be more to this. And he knows it. There's going to be more to the process. There's going to be torture. Not only am I going to be mocked and made fun of, but flogged and beaten and tortured. That's part of the plan. And he's telling them that from the beginning. He says they'll be mocked and flogged and crucified. Now when he mentions crucified, this again, he did not mention this before. Every one of those disciples knew exactly what that meant. Crucifixion was by nature public. They did it in public places as a deterrent. They hung people on the cross on major roads. So you'd walk by and you'd see it, you'd smell it, you'd hear it. It was awful. The most detestable way to die. And so when he says, I'm going to be beaten, I'm going to be mocked, and I'm going to be crucified, I'm guessing there was shock on their face. Because we didn't know this was part of the deal, Jesus. And he's telling them ahead of time, hoping that it prepares them for what they're about to go through, what he's about to go through. Then it says, he will be raised on the third day. Just simply, Jesus knew the plan, beginning to end. He knew what he had to go through. He knew what was waiting for him at the end. He knew it all. There's a miracle in that he knew it. There's a miracle that he went through it. And obviously, God brought it all about, just as he said. So that's what Jesus said. Let's dig down to uh, some of the significance, the reality behind this, and maybe answer some questions. And maybe there's questions you've had about when you talk about Jesus and his suffering and his death and his resurrection. I'm just going to ask three questions, pretty simple questions, and we're going to figure out what the text says about it. First of all, why did Jesus have to suffer? So we know, we always hear Jesus died on the cross for your sins, but there's all this other stuff. Some guy came up to me after the first service and said, yeah, when I watched The Passion of the Christ, the biggest thing I thought was, why did he have to go through all of that suffering? Why couldn't he have just died? First of all, we have to remember that as part of the plan from the beginning. This was not a surprise. This was not something that just like, God kind of sprung on Jesus like, oh yeah, by the way, there's going to be some pretty nasty stuff that happens. If you go through Isaiah 53, talking about the Messiah, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. This, hundreds of years before Jesus came, was part of what happened to the Messiah. He knew it. Anyone who was paying attention knew it. It was part of the plan. The suffering was built in. So, how do we think about why Jesus suffered what he did? The brutal torture and beating. Jesus' suffering was God's irrefutable evidence 
that Jesus was fully qualified in every way to stand as a substitute for any human who believes in him. Okay. So his suffering was God removing all doubt that Jesus lived a full, complete human life all the way to the end. Let's look at a couple of passages to help us think about this, why he had to suffer. Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness. Okay, a high priest is a mediator. In the Old Testament, it was the mediator between the nation of Israel and God. Jesus is the ultimate high priest because he is God and is man together. He can be that mediator between God and man. So because he's a mediator, he, can, uh, he sympathizes with us. But there's more to it. It's not just sympathize. It says, but in one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Okay, let's think about this. This is not just talking about when Jesus was 14 and he saw a pretty girl and he was tempted. Or like he was tempted to cheat on his carpentry examination or something like that. We're not talking about being tempted in that way. Jesus was tempted, intensely tempted, every second of his life on earth. Okay, what do I mean by that? The temptation Jesus experienced was a, a lifetime of cumulative, compounding temptation because he never gave in to one. So he always felt the full effect, the full force of the temptation because he never resisted. And they just built and built and built. It started, I mean, it started when he was young, but Satan really encapsulated it when Satan tempted him in the desert. Essentially, Satan was saying, are you sure you want to go through this? You don't deserve that. They don't deserve that. Why? Just, just call it off. Take your rightful place. The temptation was every step that he took on this earth was a temptation to just like, you know what? This is not worth it. This is hard. He was experiencing all of the anguish of humanity every single day. And so for us, we don't understand the strength of that temptation. I, I think of um, when I was in college, I was on a bike ride, and a thunderstorm came out of nowhere, and we were getting pelted, trying to ride our bikes into the storm. The wind and the rain, it was just awful. Finally, we just, uh, not, after not too long, jumped in the ditch to get out of it because we didn't want to feel the full force of the storm. We don't understand the full force of temptation because we sin, because we give in to temptation and we get out of it. Jesus never gave in once. So every single temptation was always coming at its full force and he had to walk right through it all the way to the end. So when you think about this verse, it's kind of like, oh, he went through everything that I did and he did everything and, it's, and he, he didn't sin. Yeah, he faced a lifetime of being assaulted with the temptation to give it all up. Because he could have. He even said it himself. I could call angels right now and this would be done. And because of that, the beating and the torture and the abuse at the end was awful, but it was just the culmination of his whole life. So it says that he has sympathy, meaning he can relate to us, but there's more to it. Dig deeper. Hebrews 2.10. For it was fitting that he, this is God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, that's all of us, should make the founder of their salvation, it's Jesus, Perfect through suffering. 
Now, what does that mean? If you've seen that verse before and you kind of, it sounds like it's saying Jesus was made perfect. Like he wasn't perfect or there was some imperfection or impurity in him and his sufferings got rid of those so that he finally was perfect. That's not what the Bible teaches about who Jesus is. So what does this actually mean? How was he made perfect through suffering? Jesus' suffering showed the entire universe that he went through every possible temptation and anguish that any human could go through and yet remain sinless and completely committed to the Father's will. He had every opportunity to just call it off. Every time they mocked him. You really going to go through with this? Every time they beat him. Are you sure you want to do this? When they flogged him with the whip. Really? You're going to endure this too? Again and again? He didn't go from being imperfect to perfect. His perfection was fully tested and proven to be genuinely perfect. So here's what it means when he experienced the deepest severest anguish and agony that anyone could experience. It means that because he faced every temptation and every suffering that any human could face, yet he defeated every single one of them, he was vindicated as the only perfectly qualified substitute who could stand in the place of anyone who believes in him. How does a substitute work? Well, if you watch football... If your right tackle gets injured, you don't substitute a wide receiver in that spot. They're not built the same. They don't have the same training and experience. It's not, a, it's not a valid substitute. In order to be a substitute, there has to be something in common. So, for instance, if Jesus came just to me and said, I'm going to be your substitute, he would have to go through all of my experience, all my lifetime of complications and anguish and suffering and health and, and difficulty and take my sin on, and, and he'd have to go through all that stuff to be a substitute for me, to stand in my place, and he died instead of me. Okay? That's how a substitute would work. But you multiply that by the billions of people whom he has saved and you have all of their experience, all of their suffering, all of their anguish, physical, emotional, all of it, and on top of that, their sin... And he has to be a substitute for everyone who believes. So that when he hung on the cross, he hung there for you and for me and for everyone. So why did Jesus have to suffer and go through what he went through? The awful torture? To prove that he was worthy to take your sins and my sins and everyone's sins so that we wouldn't have to suffer the anguish and the torture for eternity. That was the purpose of his suffering. So then why did Jesus have to be crucified? Because it's not just died. Usually we say generically, Jesus died for his sins. Well, that doesn't mean just died of old age or died in an accident like there was a rock slide and he died. Oh, well, he died for your sins. That's not how t uh, sacrifices in the Old Testament worked. The, the lamb was chosen specifically because it was pure, because it was in its prime, and it had a specific purpose. It wasn't accidental. You didn't pick the, the, the lamb that was barely walking and blind in both eyes. Think, well, we're going to give that one. 
That's not the point. That's not how it worked. Christ had to die in a way that removed the curse from sinners, put that curse on himself, and allowed God to replace the curse with grace. So there's a ladder of thinking in this. So follow me with the ladder. It's Bible verses that build on each other. First of all, in Deuteronomy 21, it makes it very clear that anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed. The Jewish people uh, considered this absolute an abomination, detestable. Anyone who was hung on a, tr- on, a, on a tree. And that was very clear. So anyone that was, they were, it was a loathsome, detestable practice. So when Jesus, when Paul in Philippians 2.8 says that Jesus was obedient, he says, obedient to death, even death on a cross. Meaning Jesus came to die in the worst possible way. The most detestable way by being hung on a tree. Galatians 3 clears it up. Why? Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. So Christ redeemed us, paid for us, this is Galatians, from the curse. Now again, he's linking that curse, the curse that has to be paid for. Because the, the timeless principle in Scripture is a curse of sin must be paid for and punished by God's wrath. It must be paid for by the sinner or a substitute. This curse Jesus took on himself. Peter puts it this way in 1 Peter 2. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Peter understood the significance of the tree. Because that's what he calls it, the cross. He was cursed, so we don't have to be. Because he goes on and says, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Our sin, the curse, died with Jesus. Romans 3.25, the reason he did this, God says he put him forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So a propitiation is a wrath-absorbing sacrifice, a curse-absorbing sacrifice. Jesus was the propitiation. He took the wrath. He took the curse on us, removed it from us so we could receive grace. Colossians 2 says that by doing this, he canceled the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, its rightful demands for us to be punished for our sins, he says, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Paul wasn't talking about a piece of parchment that had a list of sins that you hang on a tree. He's talking about Jesus. And he didn't just balance our sins. Like, you know, I know you have a bunch of, did a bunch of bad things. I'm going to come along and just balance it out so then you're good. Nope, that's not how it works. It is to be canceled. And he says, Jesus canceled it by nailing it to the tree himself. So why did Jesus have to be crucified? He had to suffer the most cursed death in order to show that he could bear and absorb the curse for anyone who believes in him. No sin is beyond his ability to cancel. No death is below his ability to conquer. And God chose to bring Christ to the lowest death in order to raise him to the highest glory. Why did he have to rise again? He had to rise again to prove that it all worked. Because he said in John 11, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Okay, that sounds great. But how do we know that it worked? Because he died and then he walked out of the grave. We know what happens because it happened to him. 
The resurrection is the ratification. That's something you make it official. You certify it. You validate it. It's the ratification that God's promise of salvation, of eternal life, will be fulfilled for all who trust in Christ. It proves that death has been defeated and that people who are doomed to die for their sin be given new life in Christ. I heard one pastor uh, say this way, the keys of death hang on the inside of the grave. Okay? The only way to unlock death is from the inside. Well, guess what? Who do we put in a grave? Someone who is dead. Being dead significantly hampers your ability to get up and unlock the door. Jesus said in Revelation 1.18, I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. I have the keys of death and Hades. So Jesus really died, and then he really rose again, and he grabbed the keys of death, and he unlocked the door. And anyone who is dead, that has been paid for, redeemed by Jesus, can walk right out with him. Romans 6.5 says, If we've been united with him in a death like his, we'll be united with him in a resurrection like his. Jesus had to die and rise again in order for anyone else to be able to die and rise again. This has a spiritual and a physical reality. The spiritual reality is we're all dead in our sin, spiritually dead, no hope. The death of Jesus and his resurrection means that instead of spiritual death, we have spiritual life. Our, our souls have been redeemed and we'll live with him forever. But that's not it. There's a physical reality because God created in the Garden of Eden both uh, body and spirit together. And he redeemed both on the cross and through his resurrection. Meaning, when he died and rose again, he rose with a new body, a glorified body that he walked. It wasn't just spirit. And that body is fit for eternity. He has it right now and he'll have it forever. And the Bible says that's the same type of body that we'll have. Not just our spirit is saved, but our bodies will be redeemed and resurrected, reunited with our spirit with a body fit to be with him forever. That's the significance of the resurrection. So why did he have to rise again? To prove that God can bring dead people to life. It seals the gospel promise. So as I was thinking about how to remember this, if you want to, why did Jesus suffer? To be our substitute. To prove that he could stand as our sub anyone's substitute, no matter what they've gone through. Why was he crucified? To bear the curse. See, they all start with the same letter. See how that works? So memory, memory trick. To crucified to bear the curse that we deserve so we can receive grace instead. Why was he raised? To ratify that it all works the way God laid it out. That's, this is basically the gospel. We've covered a lot today. And, and so... You don't have to fully understand all of this today, but you do have to love it. it. It has to be beautiful to you. It has to be your greatest joy and treasure. Are, are you moved closer to Christ when you remember these realities? We're going to move to the table, and you have to ask yourself this question. This is a great time to ask this uh, there's three different phases. You hear it, you understand it, and believe, and then you believe it. Some people, like hearing it is familiar, like you're familiar with, I've heard gospel of Jesus, I've heard the cross before. Yep, right, I've heard this. If it doesn't translate into actually assenting to the fact that these things exist, that this happened, understanding what it means is the next step. 
but you have to believe. Hearing it is the first step. Hearing, faith comes by hearing. But just knowing or just even agreeing with everything that I've said here does not make you a Christian because Satan believes everything that I said to be absolutely true of what I just preached. And he is not a Christian. The Bible doesn't say that we're saved by saving facts. It's saving faith. So some of you, this just, you're just excited. It's just something, it burns something in your heart. Just, Jesus loves me. He did this for me. And you're there. If that's where you are, you've been spiritually awakened by God and you've walked with him however long you've walked with him. And once again this morning with the gospel, he has just moved you closer to his heart. So you're there to take communion. Some of you, maybe that's a little bit buried. You hear this and it's like, yeah, that's interesting. I remember when I used to kind of think more about this. Man, take a moment. Let God peel back whatever's in the way because he wants it to get here this morning. Maybe some of you, it's the very first time you heard this or maybe the first time you understood some of these things. Maybe all of a sudden you're feeling something or realizing something that's completely different than ever before. That is a clue that God is awakening your heart and giving you life and faith. Go there. And, and if, he, if he is, celebrate that. Celebrate, come tell someone. I think I think I've finally, this, something happened. That's God getting here for you. As we take communion, that's the point. Let something that you've heard this morning or something that God is impressing in your heart dig down and drill down deep as you remember what he's done. Would you please pray with me? Lord, this time now that we move into is a response to what we've just talked about. The tremendous agony of your suffering, the reality of your death on the cross, and the joyful the joyful reality of your resurrection just are spinning in our heads. And you told us to remember this, to rehearse this, to think about this deeply, and we want to this morning. Oh, please help us. In your name we pray. Amen. So, you have, you have the cup. Uh, the little elements with the bread side and the juice side. What's going to happen is we're going to take a few minutes and just think about the bread. The band is going to sing a song. At any time during that song, we're not going to take it together. As you're, You can sing along. You can read your Bible. You can pray. Whatever the Lord is leading you to do over the course of the next three or four minutes, whenever you're ready, just take that bread. What you're thinking about is Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. What he's saying is, I'm going to go through all that I'm going to go through, being tortured and mocked and beaten for you so that I could be a substitute. And that's real. We actually hold it in our hands. Remember, he actually had a real body. It really, really happened. And we take that and we say, thank you that you did not give up. You didn't just toss it and say, enough. I'm not going through this. He did it every step of the way. And he did it for us. So as we sing this song, as you reflect on his great sacrifice, take that bread whenever you're ready. Say, thank you, Jesus, for your body that was broken for me.